Hey everyone, Eric here. I'm excited to announce our newest show on investing at Turpentine, Sorcery by Molly O'Shea. Sorcery brings the conversations investors and founders have behind closed doors to light. Past episodes have featured Alex Kolodzic of AVC, Xander Oltman of Commodity Capital, and David Weisberg of 10X Capital, whom you might know from another Turpentine show. This is the show for investors by investors. We dive deep into topics like the significance of LPGP dynamics, portfolio construction, if SaaS is really dead, AI theses and predictions, and more. Check it out by searching Sorcery on any podcast platform today. Institutions, when they're effective, have to have similar sources of external energy inputted into them. That's what FDR was, right? Like we had a system that was ill-adapted to the changing technological reality of the Industrial Revolution. And across, you know, not just the U.S., but other countries, they had statesmen who were able to see from one local minima to another and make the leap in a way that wasn't possible just through gradual gradient descent across institutions or something like that. And so I think the U.S. institutions have sort of fallen into a similar kind of like local maxima or local minima. There's a question like I get a lot. It's like, how would you regulate AI? I think the right level would be to say, you know, after transformative AI, what, what does regulation even look like? Does our regulatory state become like totally anachronistic? And anytime we've had the technology shifts, it's, it's, it's really shifted the balance of power between nation states and society. And I think this one is no different. And if you look at the printing press, like famously, it was launched wars in Europe and challenged the authority of the, of the Catholic Church. And I think there's like a sense in which AI is going to bring that instability and disruption to many more areas of the economy. Today, my guest is Samuel Hammond. Sam is a senior economist at the Foundation for American Innovation, formerly known as the Lincoln Network, a think tank focused on bridging Silicon Valley and DC. Our conversation traverses frameworks large and small. We talk about pluralism, effective accelerationism, AI, and why we humans live at the knife edge of complexity from a universal perspective. We also dig into more practical matters like government dysfunction, social policy, and the think tank ecosystem. I think you'll particularly enjoy how adept Sam is at drawing connections between disciplines and bridging seemingly disparate ideas. So let's get right to it. Sam, welcome to Upstream. Excited to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Eric. So by way of introduction, in, uh, in the startup world, when we're looking to get a sense of, a, of an idea, we'll, we'll use a lot of X for Ys. We'll say, or, or it's like, we'll say it's like if Discord and Quora had a baby, or we'll say it's the Uber for X. Or, and so I'm, I'm curious in terms of, by way of introduction, for people to better understand you as a thinker, how would you kind of define yourself in a way that people could understand? Like, for example, I asked Sam Oberja if he's more of a, you know, in the Zion camp, that geography and energy and demographics are what matters, or if he's more in the biology camp or that technology and uh, human IQ are what matters, or if he's more in the Olson camp, it's just quality of institutions that matters. When you think about your worldview, what is the best sense for the audience to get a sense of how you think about things? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Samo because I think we might both identify as civilizationalists that there's this, uh, you know, there's nation states, there's organizations, there's all these different levels of um, ways of analyzing society, but they all kind of culminate into a sense of civilization. And when you look across history at when there is broad flourishing in society, say like the Florentine Renaissance, it isn't just that they had like the best masonry and the best banking and so forth. It's like they had the best everything, right? And if you look, look across uh, the world today, like the countries that rank the highest in economic freedom and the human development index, like they also have the best functioning governments and, you know, the least corrupted markets. And so there's like this X factor behind institutions that uh, is deserving of study. And it doesn't really boil down to, you know, geography or demographics. Those are major structural forces, but there's also these X efficiencies that, uh, that matter for society as a whole. So it's more of like an institutionalist, but more so like the people that make up the institutions or how, how would you? Yeah, I think it's it's like an evolving science to try to figure out like why some civilizations succeed and whereas, whereas others fail and how they find fall into dysfunction. Like broadly, you know, the, the other thing a civilizational perspective does is sort of, I think it's like the correct um, level of analysis if you're a long-termist, right? So I've written a little bit about, you know, why I'm not exactly an effective altruist, but 
you know, one of the critiques of effective altruism is it sort of has this like God's eye view, like they're in control of the social welfare function for society. And I think really like what they're doing is doing morality for civilization as a whole. Right. And in some ways, like people have pointed out that like monotheistic gods, you know, arose with centralized governments and the kind of modern civilization. And so there's like an analogy between like this God's eye view of the world and the right set of norms and principles and decisions that matter for civilization as a whole. The, the issue is that civilization isn't a thing. It's not like, a, it's not a unitary actor, right? And so that's where um, the EA people kind of fall down as they think that they're, they're sort of importing this like God's eye view into an individual person, right? And our, our individual morality is something quite different, right? So you're, you're not effective altruism because you're, you're more of a pluralist um, or you're more of a, you're more humble uh, epistemologically. It's like a gestalt, right? You, you can more, uh, moralize about the forests or you can moralize about the trees, right? And if you want to say like, you know, a, um, a central banker should, should think in terms of consequentialism because interest rates going up and down, it's going to affect a whole bunch of society. And you can't really like take that on a, you can't really apply virtue ethics to that. Like you could apply virtue ethics to selection of a central banker. You want someone who's prudent, who has good judgment, um, who like embodies a kind of excellence in central bank management. The error is in sort of incorporating that, that God's eye view as an individual ethic, rather than trying to see what is the indiv individual ethic that aggregates up to that God's eye view. Yeah, just to make your consequentialist point or about the bank more clear, it's like the idea that in my family, I might be a communist, but, uh, you know, the, the famous Taleb quote, but in my town, I might be a Democrat in my nation, I might be a libertarian or something like different sort of methodology, you know, sort of uh, approaches might work at different scales at different scopes. And similarly, uh, you know, the bank, she, you know, it shouldn't be a virtue ethicist, but maybe in different uh, capacities, you should be. Is that the idea? Or, or, or that there's like a direction of fit to kind of different kinds of moral propositions. And if you, you can't live your life as a utilitarian, you know, that you'll end up stealing your coworkers lunch to give to the homeless person outside. Are you as big of a believer in the great founder theory as, as Samo is, that it's like individual people who make things happen? That seems to be an empirical fact almost. Um, there, there are clearly deeper structural forces that, you know, there's always this like counterfactual thing where like if Hitler wasn't born, would there have been a different Hitler? I wrote years ago a piece called The Bourgeois Virtue of Contingency. And um, it was kind of a rejection of like these more Whiggish teleological theories of history where like there's like necessity that it was going to happen one way or the other like there that may be on a long enough time scale but like one of the lessons from silicon valley is actually it takes people with agency to to really execute to build things right like elon musk's famous quote about like it's easy to have the idea to go to the moon the hard part is executing and that that often takes like very special people especially in the context of a hierarchical organization where they can sort of manifest their leadership. I always found you as an interesting thinker because there, there are not that many people who can, let's say, like, you know, talk to biology about uh, technology or uh, you know, journalists um, or talk to the GMU crew about, uh, you know, GDP, uh, you know, or, or sorry, progress folks, but then also talk to Ezra about cost disease socialism and, and just kind of like, you know, we like meet them at their, at their levels and variety of different groups that maybe are contrary to each other in, in, in different ways. And, and you seem to be one of the very few people who, who can do that. Oh, thank, thank you, Eric. <laughs> you're, you're weaving right now, you know, from social policy back into tech policy, AI. Also by way of introduction, why don't you unpack that transition uh, a, a bit and, and share more about what you're trying to do and what you did. So I, uh, I was born in Canada, but when I first moved to DC, it was to work at the Mercatus Center at George Mason. And that's sort of, um, you know, the hub of sort of rationalist libertarian types like, uh, you know, Robin Hanson, Tyler Cowen, Brian Kaplan, that, that old crew. And I, I, I initially had wanted to, to go there because I had this interest in like public choice economics and how institutions work and so on. But with like that, that futurist, that futurist asterisk, asterisk on it. And I did a lot of work in tech policy. I worked on, you know, supersonic aviation, some stuff around drones. But in 2016, when I launched the Niskanen Center Social Policy Department, um, the reason for that was, you know, all my writing, all my recreational writing was sort of on how institutions evolved um, in response to the, the Industrial Revolution, right? And how, like, 
things like the New Deal, like the kind of Bismarckian um, social insurance state that arose during that era was a response to the forces of creative destruction and the need to compensate people to, you know, create buy-in for markets and stuff like that. And um, the subtext to all that work, and I've been working at Niskanen for the last seven years, was sort of creating the infrastructure, the, the human level infrastructure for accelerating creative destruction to ensure that when people lose their jobs or when industries rise and fall, that first of all, they're allowed to rise and fall, right? That they're not captured by guild systems that, you know, build in social protection at the level of the, you know, the particular market structure. And then that labor can like efficiently recycle to new, to new um, lines of productivity. And I, like I said, like in the background was sort of the sense that I had, you know, since I read The Singularity is Near back in 2004, I guess, um, you know, taking really seriously that like, you can actually predict quite a bit by just looking at like Moore's Law and staring at it and, <laughs> and trying to think what it, about what it implies. And so, uh, you know, even in Costasy Socialism or these other pieces, there's always a line in there somewhere saying like, we got to be careful not to bake in certain assumptions about the state of technology because, you know, we had the China shock that disrupted manufacturing across the U.S. The next shock is unpredictable, but it could be something like artificial intelligence or these, these other kinds of systems, roboticization, and that we need to be prepared for that. And now, and now that AI is having a bit of an inflection point, I felt like it was the time to, um, you know, I did my best to try to <laughs> lay some groundwork to try to modernize unemployment insurance and all these things that are, are totally broken in the U.S. system. But now that things are taking off, it's time to get back to AI and how it may impact our institutions. How do you view, we mentioned the effect of altruists, you know, there's a effect, the EAC, Effective Accelerationist Community that, that has merged it and we're having, you know, somewhat of a, of a tech civil war around sort of the AI safety people, the A people, and uh, who, who say, hey, you know, we need to get regulation in early. This thing is, you know, literally paused technology development. This thing is, this thing, you know, can get out of hand. This thing is, is very different from the past. And then we have the EAC crew who are saying, hey, this is just a front for either for regulatory capture or actually, um, you know, the way to have alignment is to have all of these sorts of competing um, AIs and thus you, you want to encourage people to catch up and, uh, you know, we'll have competition in the same way that nuclear uh, capabilities have also uh, been sort of de-risked by having multiple people have them. As you're watching this conflict emerge, where, where do you stand on it? How do you make sense of it? Yeah, well, I'm now at the Foundation for American Innovation and we just had our launch party. Um, and one of the, one, one of our guests brought a gift, which was, uh, that flag with the, the GPU it says, you know, from my cold dead hands. <laughs> um, so I'm honestly like have a lot of like, like epistemic and moral uncertainty about what the right answer is here. And I'm skeptical of people who I think like a lot of the EAC people, the effective accelerationists, they, they almost have this religious view of like thermodynamics that, <laughs> you know, we need to act in the best, we need to act in the interests of, uh of like the heat death of the universe and you know there's a certain internal logic to it but i don't quite know where they they get that um sense of certainty but the way i've talked about this in the past is that there are different dimensions of acceleration there is the sort of horizontal dimension of taking gpt4 and lower level models and trying to build ai lawyers ai doctors uh, ai accountants and just like full steam ahead uh you know screw the intellectual property holders like you know, we should be able to generate Taylor Swift songs with a click. Like that whole copyright regime is now um, obsolescent, not not uh, something that we need to like start like building a surveillance state. So we know uh, who <laughs> who's who's generating illegal Drake music. And then there's this vertical dimension where I think there's reason to actually be more, way more cautious. And um, I think that also came through in the recent uh, hearing that where, where Sam Altman was you know pulled before Congress. And there was sort of like the superficial agreement between him and Gary Marcus, who was the the AI skeptic or naysayer on on the panel. And uh, but Mar what Marcus would want, he wants like an FDA for releasing new models, even even like simple models like AutoGPT or these like open source applications. And that is like obviously completely unworkable and would probably probably destroy the AI ecosystem outside of big corporate labs. So I'm very much against that. But you look read between the lines what Sam was saying. There was like the superficial sense of agreement, but what he was really saying was like, at some point, maybe in a few years, we're going to have systems that are vastly more powerful than anything we've seen before. Um, not just in terms of like autonomous general human level agents, but also like things for synthesizing no novel pathogens. 
And, you know, I think even the most ardent libertarian would understand why, um, if you had like a full stack 3d printer that, you know, you tell it to make a novel pathogen and it will just do it for you, that that shouldn't be open source, that there may be real societal risks there. By the way, before getting back to AI, I believe you're a reformed libertarian to, to some degree. Um, if, if you could tell, say anything to a libertarian that would help them have either convert or have a bit more uh, nuance, what, what would you, or you show them a blind spot they have, what would you say? Well, I mean, there's, there's lots of blind spots. I'm still, I'm still like broadly libertarian. Um, you know, I, I think libertarianism, I, you know, I think there's a genealogy to our ideas and to our morality and so on. Um, and, uh, sort of like the effective, uh, effective accelerationists where they sort of somehow get this like eternal cosmic moral principle or moral thing that they're optimizing for. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at erikaterpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at terpentine.co, and let's partner together. Some libertarians, I, I get the sense, especially like if from the natural rights tradition, think that these ideas were, you know, written into the cosmic, the fabric of space time or something like that. And, um, you know, this is, this applies to libertarians, but it applies to everyone else too. Like it's really valuable to step back and try to step outside the flow of history and see the, again, the, the contingency of your ideas and, and how they, you know, arise in particular technological moments, um, in history. And, and not try to like extrapolate them out of distribution <laughs> because a lot of, a lot of libertarianism ends up being kind of very formulaic. It turns out there's like, the world is just very messy. Go back to AI. You have in one of your blog posts, you have a quote I want to read. The main risk for AI isn't it waking up and incinerating humanity, but rather the societal destabilization and potential state collapse that'll occur when 5,000 years of economic history gets compressed into a couple of months. How, how, do, how do we address this risk? And um, maybe adjacent to that, what can we learn from Mormons about how to uh, <laughs> uh, how to uh, handle uh, technological revolution? Yeah, yeah. One of the reasons I wrote that is, uh, and it's a little hyperbolic, I suppose. But um, you know, maybe it's only five hundred years of history that gets gets compressed into a few months. But uh, you know, first of all, there's a kind of inherent skepticism that the the Yudites, the uh, Eliezer Yukowski sort of school of thought on this, get when they talk about um, the dangers where, you know, he kind of solves for the equilibrium. Like, you know, maybe in some actually quite distant future, we'll have like such massive models that they'll just spontaneously learn how to like, you know, solve the protein folding problem and escape from the lab and kill us or something. That seems quite implausible to me. Um, but even if that is a world that we're approaching, there are intermediate stages that we will pass through. And those stages may end up, you know, being disruptive to the institutions that would be around to respond to that future risk. And when I look through history at like the printing press or the industrial revolution, these regime, these technological regime changes precede institutional regime changes. Right. And so there's, there's a question like I, you, I get a lot. It's like, how would you regulate AI? I think the right level would be to say, you know, after transformative AI, what, what does regulation even look like? Right. Uh, do our, does our regulatory state become like totally anachronistic because it is this like 20th century thing that is built for an era of like standard setting bodies and, and everyone used to use USB-C <laughs> and, and all this kind of junk. And, and that's the thing, thing that I think is going to come on pretty quickly because a lot of what government work is, is like a, a, a fleshy API, right? And um, just like software is eating the world and Mark Andreessen's famous terms, software will eat the state. And anytime we've had the these techno technology shifts, it's, it's, it's really shifted the balance of power between nation states and society. And I think this one is no different, right? And if you look at the printing press, like famously, it was, you know, launched wars in Europe and challenged the authority of the, of the Catholic church. And you can see, you see like analogies with, you know, 
information technology and the way it's disrupted traditional media. And I think there's like a sense in which AI is going to bring that instability and disruption to many more areas of the economy, right? So like right now the WGA is on strike because they want to get paid more for their crappy streaming reality shows and stuff. When Adam Smith talked about the Industrial Revolution, he he noted that like one of its benefits was it disrupted the old guild system, right? And the WGA literally has guild in the name, <laughs> right? And so maybe AI should be writing those like telenovelas that are a dime a dozen uh, because the human writers are already doing a ton of interpolation and borrowing and copying and pasting. People are people are trying to like fit AI into existing modes of production where they're saying, oh, how can AI make the WGA writers more productive rather than saying, how is the entire system going to get turned over? Um, and and because there's been an unprecedented degree of sclerosis and calcification and crystallization in our institutions, uh, I think it's just going to be a very difficult transition. Is, is the right model that, you know, instead it will make the best people better, but that the middle class will just get decimated in kind of whatever creative or, you know, care, care, caring field? Of... I hope not. I, I think, you know, I do think it's going to come for the upper middle class, kind of laptop class. Uh, you know, I'm not excluded from that. And I think that could be, you know, quite egalitarian, but in a way that's like actually egalitarian. Well, a lot of, you know, upper middle class people put, you know, put signs in their window that suggest a degree of egalitarianism, but don't actually want to make sacrifices. And so, you know, if there's a, like a, if AI leads to like much greater compression in human capabilities where people without, you know, linguistic facility, you know, are able to use a external word cell <laughs> and bootstrap themselves up, um, you know, that, that, that will level the playing field. And I do think there will be, as always, like these Pareto distribution effects for, uh, you know, there's the thousand X software engineer who's able to use the tools in a way that, that other people don't. But I think for the most part, it's going to be kind of equalizing. I think Samo had a tweet that some bullshit jobs will be immune to AI because they were immune to, like, they were invented to begin with. Yeah, you can't automate bullshit jobs. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, what what happens when the the upper middle class, the PMC, whatever you want, like, what happens when they're disrupted at a material level? They try to, you know, regulate like heavily. Yeah, I think there's a butler. We're on the cusp of a butlerian jihad to end, to end all butlerian jihads, right? Like, you know, the uh, U.S. Copyright Office is having listening sessions right now about how to prepare for AI in a world where the chart-topping Drake song is even by Drake, and that's only going to get easier. And it's going to be very difficult to regulate because these are often open-source models that can run locally on your computer, and uh, and so like one world would be, let's build the architecture, some kind of blockchain, you know, tracking system that will like know exactly who produced the music. And like, maybe we need to have like stuff on your GPU so we can turn it off if you make a Taylor Swift song without permission. <laughs> right? So there's like one world where we're tr we try to lock in the existing paradigm and build have to architecture like this insane totalitarian system to, to do so versus just letting the water wash over us and re realizing that, you know, maybe this is the twilight of the celebrity. And, you know, there will be people who um, gain fame and status because they're the best at pasting together things and making AI generated music and, and content and so forth. Um, but it won't be the, it won't be the Beyonce's, you know, their, their time has, has come. The famous Peter Thiel quote that AI is communist, crypto is libertarian. You, you think it's either the opposite or, or it's more nuanced in that, as you just gave an example, blockchain can be quite authoritarian or quite centralizing. And as you've given other examples, AI can be quite decentralizing in the access and power that it gives the, the, the average person, you know, that doesn't need to rely on, you know, big organizations. But of course, in, in the wrong hands, it can also be, you know, or in, in centralizing hands, it can be used for a centralizing end. How, how, would, how would you edit or characterize that yeah no i have i have said before that um i would turn teal's phrase around the the one amendment i would make to it is um you know rather than ai being libertarian i would say it's potentially communitarian and you know my intuition for that is like if you take something like public education right um you know public education it has a serves a lot of purposes it's a daycare it's uh it so, socializes you but uh the core 
you know, at least stated function of education is to, you know, train kids and give them human capital. And we've lo- we've known for a long time that like mastery based learning and tutoring uh, can have a two sigma effect on learning outcomes. the The main problem has been it's really hard to have a tutor for every single student. Uh, it just doesn't scale. But I think in the next couple of years, we're going to see systems that are like, you know, the Miss Frizzle that, uh, you know, makes eye contact with the avatar and the student and like, you know, can recognize their voice and, uh, you know, is adaptive and like notices when they're struggling on fractions and does more fractions, but also like makes is like has some reinforcement learning mechanism to like make sure that it's staying fun and the students engaged. And what that means is like anyone of a web browser will be able to pull their kids out of school and not just, you know, do a bare minimum homeschooling, but like, you know, in some ways, like strictly dominate what they're going to get through public education. At the same time, if like their jobs are being displaced and new jobs are coming into creation that are more remote and, or whatever, like there could be, an, there could be a rapid unbundling of the public education system, sort of like what we saw during COVID, but on steroids, because during COVID, 2 million kids left the system to do homeschooling. And so there's like one version of that where that could be atomizing, but what I think will what will actually happen is that, you know, after the transition, people will rebundle around like intentional communities, potentially, or jujitsu schools, because, you know, you, you still need a gym teacher <laughs> uh, or chess clubs or things like that. And so AI will enable people to it'll fragment society, but will enable people to like interface more uh, directly with like people within their community. You did your thesis, I believe, on religions. And you've been fascinated with Mormons. So what lessons does Mormonism teach for how institutions can adjust to technological revolution? Well, I mean, the first lesson is the fact that Mormonism arises out of the Industrial Revolution, right? So it's in some ways the most modern religion, if you don't count like Scientology or New Age. And, um, you know, it's this weird fusion of like second great awakening, Protestant thinking, temperance, and like, you know, pro-growth, pro-technology with like the priesthood structure of like you know, some, something like blending the Catholic church and like Freemasonry. <laughs> right. Um, and the surprising thing about the Mormon church is not just that it's like one of the fastest growing religions, but, uh, the fact that it was born in that industrial context, it's very materialistic. There's a sense in which like God isn't omnipresent, but it's like a being that like moves at the speed of light, but is still constrained by special rel- relativity. Uh, so it has like this weird, like weirdly physicalist underpinning to it. And that's also why you see in Salt Lake, for example, the, the Mormon Transhumanism Association. Uh, you know, Joseph Smith said that we're living in the, lat- the latter days. And in some ways he had sort of this like Ted Kaczynski kind of insight that like the Industrial Revolution was kicking off like this techno-capitalist, uh, you know, cybernetic system that would, would culminate in something crazy. Um, and now it seems like, you know, that's prophetic, right? <laughs> like so, some people think we really are living in the, in the latter days. Um, and maybe like the baptism of the dead, which is a Mormon practice will like reemerge as like, you know, the replica that we create based on all our content to memorialize people and, or, you know, and maybe like, <laughs> like the far out long-term is like, we all just upload our brains and like become as gods. And there's some, some like literal sense in which, uh, the theology played out. But what makes it interesting institutionally is it, again, it is the fastest growing religion. It's been one of the stablest and most sort of like vertically integrated religions in the United States, whereas the mainline church has, has sort of collapsed and, and Catholicism is going through its struggles. The priesthood structure, the kind of hierarchical but yet decentralized structure of the Mormon church, the LDS church, uh, has made it incredibly resilient, right? And, um, you know, 60 Minutes did this sort of hit piece on the on the church uh, where, they're, where they're pointing out that they have like $150 billion in, in assets and stuff like that. And the Mormons, because they believe they're in the latter latter days, are like the preeminent preppers, right? Like Mormon communities have a bishop storehouse that has is full of food stuff. Um, like every every Mormon is supposed supposedly supposed to have like ninety days of supplies on hand, and so it's like the cockroach of religions. Like I think if if there's a really major institutional disruption, something like the the LDS Church will will stay standing. While we're talking about religion, if Balaji were here, he would say that. Uh... On the right, there's a religion, and it's Bitcoin maximalism. <laughs> and on the left, there's a religion, and it's, uh, you know, wokeness or progressivism. Do either of those meet the criteria for a religion in your mind? Or what are they missing? They, they're missing organization. 
right? Like a, a lot of the problem with the mainline church, and you can think of like wokeism as a just an extension of, you know, American Protestant social gospel teachings, where like the Unitarians and the Quakers became so you, you, like so pro, like the, they became so Protestant they became secular, <laughs> Which, right? But uh, but they're still like they still retain like the normative commitments. Um, but the big difference is they're not like organized like they used to be. They're not church attendance is down. People are sort of acting. Well, are, are they just organized in different ways? They just call them universities instead of. Uh, <laughs> and and by by so Protestant they became secular. You, you, and the commitments you're referring to are kind of like a duty to downtrodden, a moral equality. You know this sort of greater aspiration towards uh, towards equality, and then this universalizing. Yes, there there are organizations. There are like NGOs in <laughs> universities. But, you know, in, in the sense of them being formative institutions, you know, despite what like some conservative critics think, I don't think people, I don't think universities make students woke. I think, you know, students are already woke in high school. And if anything, they make the university more woke. And there's a sense in which like this form of Protestantism is like a an attractor, like a sociological attractor. It's like the the uh, set of lowest common denominator things that are, it, it's very easy for for society to evolve towards in a way that's spontaneous and doesn't require any kind of institutional organization or mediation. In fact, it's like the whole premise is, is, is like against mediation. Yeah. And do you think, you know, the, uh, the, the Joseph Henrik weird philosophy, we've talked about this podcast, that it's, uh, it's all pervasive. And one, once the kids get internet, it's basically like pre-uploaded it. And it's just a matter of time before their country also just gets uh, more, more progressive. Do, do, you, do you buy that? Like, that's just where everything's going? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's, I wouldn't like color it by saying more progressive. It sort of imports like how it, how it's manifesting in, in the American context, I think. But like in, in, in the culture series, the Ian M, Ian M. Banks books, there's uh, a line about the, the, um, like the platonic dog. Like if you, if you travel through developing countries, uh, and I think this actually comes from Thailand, there's like this, this erg dog you know, any developing country where like dogs are, are running, um, you know, feral dogs are running around. There's, it's like this mutt, mutt looking, scrappy looking kind of dog that you see everywhere. Right. And it's in some ways like this basin of attraction for dogs that are, are interbred with a bunch of different breeds and they all end up looking kind of similar. There's something similar going on here where, but only it's, it's it, only it's like, it's being mediated by discourse, by language. And one of the things language does, it, 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 exerts, it exerts a kind of universalizing tendency on culture, where if you have to reproduce your culture through, through words, norms that were particular to your community and were like implicit in the practices of that community become articulated as you ought to do X, you ought to do Y. And just because they're being transferred in that linguistic uh, medium, it makes it seem like everyone ought to do X, everyone ought to do Y. <laughs> Um, and so, uh, you know, Habermas has this whole theory of discourse ethics, which is essentially about this, the kind of pragmatic biases that language imposes on cultural evolution. And I think um, we're seeing that play out in the internet age where like, it's like logos working through history and, you know, the Iranians are protesting um, over the treatment of women in a way that, you know, they even have like a three word phrase, like Black Lives Matter. It's, they, 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 there's a certain like Again, it's not like they're, it's not a psyop. It's not that they're like copying us. It's like there's a deeper thing that drives people when they're organizing in a way that's totally like disintermediated and doesn't have institutional structure to, you know, settle on very simple slogans and to um, understand oppressor oppressed relationships and stuff like that. Does, does AI just accelerate all this just like any other technology? That's a great question. It's it's really hard to know. Um, it's really hard to say because uh, if you take that thesis right, that like like the printing press was a prerequisite to the Protestant Reformation, right? Um, does this take us to a new kind of Reformation? Um, and my suspicion is that it does, but um, it may it may look qualitatively different. And, it, and in fact, like one of the things that like AI does is it it, it makes interoperability matter much less. You don't, it doesn't matter if you have the same data standards. That's like, that's like a 20th century thing where like we need this kind of file to talk to that kind of file where if you just have an AI that is like can style transfer between different things, you can kind of create your own society that has its own sort of completely idiosyncratic mores and customs while still being interoperable with other societies because there's a kind of, a kind of translation layer, right? 
Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, on the broader debate, like some people are really concerned that, you know, ChatGPT is is shaded, um, you know, sort of left politically or, um, you know, denies certain truths or doesn't want to talk about cer certain things. Other people say, hey, who cares? What really matters is, you know, is this thing a threat to us? Um, and then other people will say, yeah, but I guess what matters is if people will use sort of justice concerns to justify sort of uh, centralizing or regulating it significantly, then it really matters. Yeah, I mean, but the issue is that the way, um, at least in the U.S., politics is oriented is, and I'm guilty of this myself, is like borrowing cliches from 20th century politics, right? You know, every every movement is the new civil rights movement. The environmental movement tries to structure itself that way. The gay rights movement, the LGBT stuff. It, it turns out that like even the even the civil rights movement really, you know, there was a mass mobilization component to it. But, um, you know, all all the all these changes were 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 not just the result of like getting a bunch of teenagers to like rush Congress or something like that. And so I think this is happening again with AI where people are trying to plug it into this box of like anti-discrimination and, uh, you know, the kind of human rights orientation of, of these questions. And, and there are like real questions like, you know, there's questions around, you know, who, how, how is your loan being approved? Is, is it using some opaque machine learning model that is implicitly biased? And, uh, and those are like interesting questions. They're just like, they're questions we've been debating for the last 10 years. And it's like qualitatively different from building general systems that can fundamentally replace and, you know, transform human labor. And fortunately, the, the discourse right now in DC is like, so in that latter, in, in that former mode where, uh, you know, everything is like, you know, they're still debating about like, you know, face recognition technology being insensitive, insensitive to melanin. There are probably systems out there that, that, for that, for which that's true. And especially in government systems where they don't have the most up-to-date te technology, but like as a technical problem that was solved, like we just gave it more data. <laughs> do, you, do you have a mental model for when, um, AI will make us better at our jobs versus when it will replace us? It, is it like, if you're an employer, it'll make you better. And if you're an employee, it'll replace you. I'd, I'd be glib, but like, how do we make sense of the, the impact on economic transformation? So I think of this in terms of, um, you know, Bomo's cost disease, the, the right way to understand cost disease is really just differential productivity growth. When you, when you have rapid productivity growth in manufacturing and the goods sectors, natural resources and extraction, uh, you know, digital services, IT, all that stuff is like, have very healthy productivity growth, but yet like we're still doing healthcare roughly the same way we have been for years. We're still doing education roughly the same way we have for years. There, there, there's sort of a, there's a need, there's, there's a need to have the same number of doctors, the same number of educators, but their productivity hasn't actually increased, but to retain those workers, your wages have to continue rising anyway. Um, and AI, I think is going to do something very similar where there's going to be, uh, folks for whom it's like incredibly productivity enhancing, um, in a way that's kind of like, like natural and intuitive. Like you already see this with, with programming. But there are going to be sectors where AI is, at least in the short run, kind of impervious to, it doesn't actually help with productivity. Um, but because the rest of the economy is going to be like having a productivity explosion, there's going to be a need to sort of squeeze out more productivity from, uh, from those cost disease sectors. Um, and that might, may happen from like monitoring technology. Like I think one of the things that AI is going to do really quickly in the short run, especially with Microsoft's uh, stack, is make like manager monitoring tools uh on everyone's device where like you know it doesn't just look at your kpis it's like or your your simple evals it's like tracking exactly what you did and, and coming up with like a kind of uh context sensitive like high judgment and uh, assessment of like what you did that day and did it contribute to value <laughs> do, do you think that like something the eac people are, are sympathetic to is the idea that hey humans aren't the most advanced life form and we just need to let in whatever's the most advanced life form and that's going to be something after us and we will help to usher it and we will uh you know be taking our place in the the train of evolution or, or whatever that is Where, whereas other people say no you know we are humanists and we can actually you know or should strive to kind of control these things to some degree and and not become extinct or or fall like where do you stand on that is that something that you think is going to be like a a real debate over the next like few decades. I mean, I'm a humanist because I, I, part of it is 
there, I don't think that you can step, I don't think you can step outside society and take like a God's eye view or have a sky hook to like extra outside view morality. Um, and so I think it has to come from how you're embodied. And it may be the case that there are like higher life forms. I think that's a bit of a fallacy. Like evolution isn't a gradual uh, series of improvements. It's, we're not more evolved than uh, our hominid, hominid ancestors. Like we're all, we're all roughly similarly well evolved and adapted to our, our niche, right? And evolution, like even the dinosaurs, they're not, they weren't more or less evolved than us. They were adapted to their evolutionary niche. And our, our kind of intelligence, uh, you know, emerges from that evolutionary niche. And so I don't think there's actually a basis to say that they're like higher level <laughs> life forms. Um, and if anything, like, you know, you get this from like reading self, uh, The Selfish Gene by Richard Dawkins. If it wasn't for like wasteful evolutionary arms races, the optimal, you know, evolutionary outcome would just be like a gray goo across Earth, right? Um, but, but it's because parts of that gray goo were like, I'm going to get more sunlight by like poking my head up and then it casts its shade on the rest of the goo and the other. So then there's a selection pressure to like, and then all of a sudden we have trees, right? <laughs> and trees are only as tall as they are because they're like in this constant arms race with each other for sunlight and really everything amazing, everything beautiful in life comes from that kind of waste music, art, like that's all a indirect form of sexual competition. And so, uh, you know, I worry that the the real deep EAC people are, you know, they're they're like longing for the gray goo, uh, and I don't really think that if we just had covered the earth in in TPUs and uh, you know let them let them like max their entropy and like pull all the neg entropy from the sun, <laughs> that's not a better world, right? And some in some ways, it's actually the opposite lesson. We we we. We don't just want to minimize negentropy. Neg like actually waste is good. Waste is where meaning comes from. So, so you don't think it's a better world. And is it fair to say you also don't think it's like the default for where, where things are going pending any intervention? Um, on a long enough time horizon, I, I think there's, it's plausible for like great filter reasons. Uh, there is this remarkable sort of like self-similarity in the universe, right? Where if you go down to the Planck scale and then the dark energy horizon, the horizon of the observable universe the geometric mean between those two dis distances is roughly human level scale right so we are like middle i think you know dawkins also coined this term like middle creatures we live in the middle scale of the universe um and for reasons of entropy that's also where the, the most complexity is right so we're kind of like on this knife edge of complexity between the smallest things and the biggest things and our brains are like the most complex systems that we know of um, and there's like this remarkable like similarity between the brain and other structures in the universe like if you look at um you know there's been all this work done on uh in interpretability research on the problem of super superposition that uh a single neuron in a neural network may be encoding multiple features and so it's hard to interpret that feature and the reason they call it superposition is it's like directly analogous to superposition in quantum mechanics um, and if you think about like a neural network, like maybe the, maybe the universe is in some ways describable as like a convolutional neural, neural network, <laughs> right? And so like the universe is like rediscovering it in a self-similar way in our, in our brain at the knife edge of complexity. Um, and, and so I think, I think they're like, I'm sympathetic to the EACs on that level where like they're actually seeing these like deeper time step things that are moving through the universe. And so like maybe, maybe we're in this like weird false vacuum. And uh, at some point, things will tip over and we'll go full matrix. And <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't think that is anytime soon, though. Fascinating. Sh shifting gears to something a bit more practical, but also disorienting. Give us the right mental model for why government has become less functional. Is, is, it, like, is it much more nuanced than the idea of, hey, these institutions were set up almost 100 years ago, um, or some of them at least, and um, some of them even longer. And um, the idea that they, they the incentives you know were just to continue to grow because that's how people the bigger their budget the more influence they had um, and, and there really is an accountability from the electorate or from a market um, and you know many of them can't get fired etc so there's it's just like structural or or what's the right mental model to have 
I mean, there there is a kind of baseline where institutions, uh, again, for like entropy, you know, get more disordered over time. And I know that's not, you know, I know entropy is about microstates versus macrostates and stuff like that. But uh, uh, one time I tweeted that like that uh, bureaucracies have become less functional as, as an example of entropy. And people, you know, the physicists in, on Twitter were, were very, you know, <laughs> particular in pointing out that like statistical mechanics doesn't have anything to do with like institutions. But uh, I think it does. I think there are, again, like self-similarity between um, between the big and small. Um, and when you look at, you know, government, there is this like general accretion. This like technical debt is a term that uh, Eric Weinstein has used. But then you think about sort of like, you know, why why do, why do human bodies, why does biological organisms, why, why do we not suffer from the similar kind of entropic forces? And obviously a single, an individual organism does because we age and die. But the reason is because we have, you know, external sources of energy, right? We have the sun and we have food. And we have, you know, sexual selection and, and mixtures of our genes together and so on, so on and so forth. And so I think institutions, when they're effective, have to have similar sources of external energy inputted into them. And I, I hope I'm not being like too, <laughs> too econophysics with this, but, um, but that's sort of like, you know, that's what FDR was, right? Like we had a system that was ill-adapted to the changing technological reality of the Industrial Revolution. And across you know not just the US but other other countries they had you know state statesmen who kind of like were able to see from one local minima to another and make the leap in a way that wasn't possible just through gradual gradient descent across institutions or, <laughs> or something like that and so i think the US institutions have sort of fallen into a similar kind of like local maxima or local minima and um and the reason we were we're struggling to leap from one equilibrium to another is we've done everything imaginable to make that impossible, right? Not only do we have a polarized Congress that makes it hard to do major structural reform because uh, of the lack of consensus, but we also have this um, sort of fetish for procedure where, uh, you know, in the past, in the past, like Ben of our Bush, you know, wrote a 14 page memo to FDR and got the, uh, you know, the NDRC approved, which led to the Manhattan Project like in like a few weeks, <laughs> right? Uh, today, that would be like a 10-year environmental review and then you got to do like stakeholder meetings and so on and so forth. And so it's like this proliferation of veto points. And um, it all connects in the sense that it, it's created a lock-in and uh, removed the normal escape valves, the normal mechanisms for moving out of that local minima. Tell us what's misunderstood or um, what misconceptions people have about how influence really works in DC, or how how it's uh, how it's secured and maintained. Yeah, so I, it, it's totally different than other countries, as far as I can tell. So, you know, I work in a think tank, work in public policy, and um, as I said, I'm Canadian. Like, there's no there's no think tank sector really in Canada, um, and that's because the parties, uh, you know, develop their own policy, and if they need expertise, they can go get that expertise. But you don't have like this whole ecosystem. And the U.S. is very different. It, especially beginning in like the 60s and 70s with the decline of the strong party system, you know, the new, the new primary system, the party structures kind of got very weak and, um, you know, labor federations began declining, church memberships began declining. And so all, all these membership organizations, which had defined kind of the, you know, Tammany Hall kind of era politics, uh, got supplanted by this new thing, which, which, you know, after the, after the war, the po post-war growth led, you know, led to very large, uh, you know, wealth creation, um, and the, you know, the Henry Fords and so on, the Rockefellers and whatever, you know, they, they created private foundations and those private foundations swelling on post-war growth seeded the creation of like this nonprofit ecosystem, um, where instead of like going to the labor union and negotiating something with the department of labor or whatever, you know, that still happens, but you also end up with like a bunch of independent nonprofit think tanks, policy shops, av advocacy networks, activist groups legal aid societies, XYZ law centers. Um, and it's been this kind of like decentralization or diffusion of political power. And it's, it's sort of the, the source of like what we were just talking about with that, that sclerosis. You know, in Canada, if you have a majority government, it's sometimes been called the benign dictatorship. Uh, you know, in, in the late 90s, early 2000s, Jean Chrétien, with his majority, cut the, cut the federal government by 30%, fired just straight up laid off like 50,000 civil servants. 
um, and did it with like, did it basically unilaterally, right? <laughs> and, and there was like a, a mechanism, you know, if there could be an election called if you went too far and he could be removed from office. But there's been this trade-off between like, do we give a person a ton of power but make it make it easy to fire them if they cross a line? Or do we make it hard to fire them, but we strip them of all their real power? And the U.S. has fallen into that equilibrium. In, in, our, in our last 10 minutes, I want to do a rapid fire uh, lightning round with you where I say a person and you let me know kind of your most interesting disagreement with them or, or difference in wor worldview, even though you may agree on, on many other things. First, let's, we'll say biology. It's not an interesting disagreement, but I don't think Bitcoin's going to a million dollars. Yes. How, how about the GMU crew? You could pick Tyler, you could be anybody. Like... I think Robin Hansen is much more bearish on AI than I am. And I'm not quite sure why. Tyler, uh, I think Tyler's views have evolved closer to mine over the years where he used to be more of a straightforward consequentialist and um, Benthamite kind of utilitarian. And now he's more of a, a pluralist. Brian Kaplan, I disagree with on a lot of issues, but I'm not, not for open borders, uh, for example. But uh, I sort of respect them all because they kind of, to me, they kind of embody different... Uh, the different meta-ethical schools, right? Um, like Tyler, Tyler's the pluralist. Robin Hansen's the, the like brain in a vat utilitarian. <laughs> Brian Kaplan is like the Baptist deontologist who's like, is, is wrong. It's just simply wrong not to be allowed to move between borders. So like we should just end borders, right? Um, and then Alex Tabarrok is like the objectivist because he's uh, the real Randian. Is the best argument for pluralism really just the, uh, the impossibility of of being a bent of utilitarian in terms of uh, the ability to calculate, you know, um, utility effectively, and and it's just unknowable, and th thus you should be a pluralist. It's I think it goes back to uh, an essay Charles Taylor, the the Canadian philosopher, wrote called "The Diversity of Goods," and it's it's his criticism of utilitarianism as um, as elevating one supreme good above all, all all others, and I think fundamentally there is no monopoly on the good. And uh, I think the essence of pluralism isn't just like pragmatic. It isn't just practical, but literally like on a metaphysical level, there is no single definition of good. And uh, there's kind of in incommensurabilities between different people's conception of the good. And so, um, you know, liberal democracy, the essence of liberalism is to create space for those different conceptions. That's compelling. How about uh, Ezra Klein? Ezra Klein is far too sanguine about the Democratic Party. <laughs> I think there's been some interesting parallels between Ezra Klein's thinking and some folks on the kind of new right uh, that that have been uh, gone understated. So like for a while, a lot of what Ezra was doing was like making libertarian arguments respectable and you can to, respectable to, the, to progressives. And you kind of see that with uh, supply side progressivism and so on. But if you read if you read Why We're Polarized, his book on U.S. polarization, if you read that alongside Chris Caldwell's book, The Age of Entitlement, they make the exact same arguments. <laughs> and one is like Colored, uh, called like reactionary and the other one is like this insightful thing that using you know, social science to learn about why we're polarized um but they both trace polarization to to essentially the civil rights act and and the kind of um reorientation of american political economy that that followed it's a very different difficult thing for him to say out loud right and a lot and a lot of the like his embrace of like critique of proceduralism and so forth is again sort of translating some arguments that have been on the right vis-a-vis -vis the professional managerial class and and burn them and all that. And I think ultimately he just puts too much stock in the Democrats being being the the main change maker. Yeah, interesting. I, I read both those books and what I took from the Ezra book to you know simplify crudely is this idea that, you know, at one point there both parties were racist and thus we weren't polarized. <laughs> and now only one party is racist and and that's why we're polarized. I mean, I'm simplifying radically. Uh whereas Caldwell's says we have two constitutions. One is the the civil rights, uh, one is the original constitution, then one is the kind of civil rights law. And they're, um, you know, incompatible, uh, because one is about individual rights, freedom of association, et cetera. And one is about group rights and those individual rights and group rights contradict each other. And we don't have a way to reconcile them today. Yeah, I think that's right. Does that resonate with you that, that Caldwell critique, of, like, is that the fundamental tension in society between individual rights and, and group rights? Or I think it's a big part of it. Uh, you know, I think just on a practical level, it's dangerous to have like two distinct understandings of sort two different civil religions, basically. You know, from my Canadian perspective, obviously everything is more fraught in the United States where where race issues loom loom a lot larger. But you know, in Canada, um, a lot of the conservative movement in Canada is was sort of 
defined in opposition to like the creation of these human rights tribunals and or like the Jordan Peterson stuff where like you know suddenly there's like new speech police and stuff like that and and because we were descended from the British system you know Canada didn't really have the same kind of bill of rights written constitution the United States had um and that was much more flexible that was much more pragmatic as sort of small c Burkean conservative you, you can think of like the charter of rights and freedoms in Canada which was which was sort of like our bill of rights that came up in the in the 80s as sort of like an example of like americanization right and and a lot of a lot of like canadian conservatism is about resisting the cultural imperialism of of our neighbor to the south right and so it's easier for me to say that, that this is like a big part of it because it was it is just like deviation from a british classical liberal tradition uh that emphasizes rule of law uh, you know, Hayek's norm of non-discrimination and generality to something that is actually more, you know, has, comes from valid places like uh, repairing the damage from slavery or something like that. But uh, over time has become co-opted into new, you know, new forms of patronage uh, and new, new sort of like, it's it sort of metastasized in a way that has challenged those, tr those uh, antecedents norms and constitutions and it's it, the reason it's, it's so fraught it, it, or so dangerous is because it, these are like constitutional crisis level questions and you know w one of them has to win and the claremont people you know on the on the far right and american politics are like you know they frame the, themselves around this as well like we just need to win and like reset the constitution and then people on the far left are like the equity movement you know a lot of that subtext is like we need to be the party of the Civil Rights Act and impose this new new constitution and like uh you know really uproot the old system and um and that it it makes politics more existential and this is this is ultimately why like I'm a, I'm sort of skeptical of written constitutions overall <laughs> do, do you have a sense that one of them will win or a prediction one of them has won you know the Civil Rights Act won the equity one yeah and i think there's again it's like going to this basin of attraction thing where it's very hard to roll that back and it's a path, a path of least resistance. Any last things to wrap up this conversation that uh, we haven't gotten to, but are top of mind for you? It's been a great, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for having me on here. Yeah, uh, it's been a fascinating conversation. For people who want to go deeper, I highly recommend Sam's uh, Substack um, and following him on Twitter. We'll have links in the, in the show notes. And um, anything else you want to tease uh, upcoming for folks? I'm going to be working pretty exclusively now at FAI on uh, AI and tech and institutional questions. Um, my big project right now is trying to make the case for a kind of Manhattan project for, for AI. And it piggybacks on a lot of what we've been discussing here that we need to be proactive, that we need a new institutional mechanism that uh, has a sort of great founder dynamic where it has the flexibility and nimbleness to reshape institutions. And that, you know, instead of trying to decelerate nuclear or atomic weaponry, we should be trying to to master it and we should be also be trying to master ai so that's where i'm spending my time right now that's awesome we'll have to uh, have you back on our ai show uh with nathan lebens and interview you on that uh you know w when it when it's appropriate sam thanks so much for coming to the podcast thank you upstream with eric tornberg is a show from turpentine the podcast network behind moment of zen and cognitive revolution if you like the episode please leave a review in the apple store Turpentine is a network of podcasts, newsletters, and more covering tech, business, and culture, all from the perspective of industry insiders and experts. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from AI with Cognitive Revolution to Econ 102 with Noah Smith. Our other shows drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, and investors, like Moment of Zen and my show Upstream. We're looking for industry-leading hosts and shows along with sponsors. If you think that might be you or your company, email me at eric at turpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co. Hey, it's Eric. There's no shortage of tech and business podcasts, but few actually give you a true and regular dose of the future. The A16Z podcast is the exception. It's a lighthouse for founders, breaking down the most important trends in technology and business. Struggling to keep up with the pace of change in AI? 
They just spoke to top builders from OpenAI, Anthropic, Roblox, and more, wondering what on earth is happening up in space. They just dropped a series on the satellite economy, or questioning whether recent salary transparency legislation will cause clarity or chaos. They just broke down how companies can not only survive, but thrive in this new environment. Host Steph Smith sits down with some of the world's most influential people, movers who have a track record of being both early and right, like Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak, Nobel Prize-winning astrophysicist John Mather, and A16Z co-founders Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz. So go ahead, eavesdrop on the future by following the A16Z podcast on your favorite podcast app and tell them I sent you.